Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you can hear me, but uh, you never really know what's going on. You don't pay attention to the sound system until something goes wrong. And uh, last week, uh, Mike upstairs just patched it, and Mike yeah, patched it so we could have, uh, you, could be, you could hear what's going on up here. And I, I just want to thank these guys for taking care of our sound system and, and all the things that, that happens here. So Mike, thank you. Appreciate it. And Micah, thank you. Let's, let's give him a hand. If you'd open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22, we won't be in the book of Acts. We're just going to be looking at uh, some Christmas. We're going to be having some Christmas messages starting today. Uh, our culture, in our culture, there's so much about Christmas that is uh, cultural, that is biblical, and all of that, but they all got kind of get mixed up. And one of those has to do with what we just sang a few minutes ago. It's about the star from the east. And so this morning, we will look at and find out what the scripture says about that. And uh, we'll, we'll look at it first in the Old Testament, in, in chapter 22. Really, a lot of it is in the Old Testament. But I want you to see what it says in Matthew chapter, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, not kings, a lot of times we will say three kings, that is according to tradition. The Bible never says there were three kings, and they were really kingmakers. Uh, word Magi is from the word where we get the word magicians. These were like, uh, uh, they foretold things, and they, they pronounced prophecies about kings or uh, people who they thought were kings. But Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Listen to what they said. We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So two things that we're going to look at there is what is, the, what is it that they saw? And notice the second part of that. And it says star, we saw his star in the east. And the first thing I want us to see here is, number one, is God's persistent and faithful love. He's God, God's persistent and faithful love. Chapter 22, actually chapters 22, 23, 24, 25 of Numbers is smack in the middle of the, the, uh, the wanderings of the people of God in the wilderness. Uh, they had been freed from Egypt after 430 years, uh, 400 of which they were in slavery, and they're now on their way. And in chapter 14 of Exodus, it says, uh, I'm sorry, of Numbers, it says that after they had seen uh, what, what, uh, I'm sorry, it is in Exodus, after they had seen what God had done, it says they put their trust in God and in Moses. So this was primarily a believing nation. And when God gave them his, his laws in chapter, chapters, beginning chapters, chapter 19 and 20 of Exodus, they were given, the people were given the laws of a God whom they knew and whom they, they have already trusted. Uh, but this first generation of believers, of Jewish believers, uh, who had been freed from Egypt, really just, and, and you remember the story about them. They murmured, they complained, they griped, they, uh, they were always, nothing was good enough for them. And they wished they had gone back to Egypt. They, 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 could, they, were, they wished they, they had their meat and, and their leeks and, and all the stuff, that they, all their provision in Egypt, even though they were in slavery. And so God kept saying things to them and warning them about their attitude. And in the midst of this, actually in chapter 25, they commit some, one of the most heinous things that a nation could commit, which was idolatry, and they worship Baal. 
But in the midst of that, unbeknownst to them, even though they had, God had been guiding them along in the wilderness, we begin this, this, this uh, story in chapter 22. Now, chapter 22 begins with really from the perspective of one of those kings who was afraid of the people of God, and he's heard what God has, was doing for his people. And he was overlooking them. This is on the eastern part of the Dead Sea. And he was looking at them, who would, the, the nation of God, uh, the nation of Israel gathered in the plains. And so in chapter 22, verse 1 says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pithor, near the river, in his native land. And Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They covered the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they were too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination or the fee for prophecy. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gave me. By the way, the word Lord here, the name Lord, he has an understanding of who God was. It is, notice the, 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 how it's spelled, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and it normally, it, it is the, the English translation of the name Yahweh, the covenant-making name of God. So he had an understanding of who Yahweh was. So he said, spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer that Yahweh gives me. So the Moabite princess stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. We know that. If, if, we, if we remember our Old Testament history, we already know what God had said in Genesis, in Genesis 12 uh, as a promise to, to Abram. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princess, go back to your own country for Yahweh has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princess returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. And then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God, of Yahweh my God. Now stay here tonight, as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but 
do only what I tell you. Now, God, you might be saying, okay, I thought God says do not go or do not curse these people. He tells him do not curse. Now he gives him permission to go. Still do not curse him. In fact, God was not going to let them curse him. Verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went with the princess of Moab. But God was very angry when he went. The angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord here, by the way, is the appearing of the second uh, person of the Trinity. It's what we call a theophany, uh, appearing in, 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 like in the flesh, but not in the flesh, but an, an appearance. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get, back, get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And he was angry and beat her with his staff. What have I done to you to make you... I'm sorry. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Now, tell me, if you were in Balaam's shoes or sandals, if your donkey spoke to you, would that not make you go crazy? But sin has a way of making us miss the important things in life. In fact, not only does the donkey speak, but look at what happens. Balaam answered the donkey. See, sin will do that. It will make you do dumb things. Not only does the donkey speak, but now he's speaking to the donkey. Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? You know, we have a dog and used to have three cats. Now we only have, praise God, only just one cat. But I think I would run out of the house or I know there will be something weird going on in our house if our dog or our cat starts speaking to me. But sin will do that to us. Uh, a friend of mine years ago, uh, when I could not figure out what was going on, where a man had left his beautiful wife and beautiful kids uh, and run, ran off with this not even a good-looking woman. And I told a friend of mine, I said, not, not that it's okay to run off with a good-looking woman. <laughs> I, I saw some of you laughing and going, I, I just, I'm going, and I, and I just said, man, that doesn't even make sense. And it was Ken Shepard, my friend, he and I were having coffee one day, and he said, Lacan, when does sin ever make sense? It never does. So the donkey says, have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Balaam goes, no, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. 
The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Why, why did the Lord say that? Because he's been after the money all along. He had this, this covetous heart that wanted payment, that wanted the wealth that, that in exchange for his prophecy. I have come here to oppose you because the path, your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, he says, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, you're talking about a half-hearted repentance. He said he didn't realize that the Lord was in, in front of him. It, it didn't matter if the Lord was there or not. If you had sinned, you had sinned, whether the Lord was right there or not. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. Well, God has already told him what, what God wanted him to do. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with, with the man, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border on the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, did, you, did I not send you a, an urgent uh, summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, i am come to you now, Balaam replied, but can I just say anything? I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath-Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the princes who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up uh, to uh, uh, Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw part of the people. So it was a high place, and they were look, overlooking the, the plains of Moab, and they could see the people of God. Chapter 23, Balaam said, build, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam said, and the two of them offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. God had already told him that he shouldn't curse Israel, but he was persistent. God met with him, and Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars, and on each altar I have offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a message in Balaam's mouth, and he said, Go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went back to him and found him standing beside his offering with all the princes of Moab. Then Balaam uttered his oracle. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? And then he says this. He said, from the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. That's another way of saying it. it's a holy nation that's been set apart by God. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and may my end like be theirs. Because he was seeing what God was wanting to do for them. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I have brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And then so he, chapter, uh, verse 13, Balak said to him, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will only see a part, but not all of them. And from there, curse them for me. He was really desperate. He was afraid of them. So he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah. And there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. The Lord would, 
met with Balaam and put a message in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the princess of Moab. Balak asked him, what did the Lord say? Then he uttered this oracle, his oracle, arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? What he's saying is so he understood, or he was saying what God had promised from the beginning is what he was going to do for the nation of Israel, and he was not about to change that. Verse 20, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rise themselves like a lion that does not rest till he devours his prey and drinks the blood of his victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. He says, don't say anything if you're just going to bless them. Then Balak said to Balaam, come, let me take you to another place. He's probably thinking, okay, we've been in the wrong places this last two times. Let me try someplace else. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. Isn't it amazing what people think about the uh, superstitions and, and, and sorcery type things that people think that somehow by some magic things that you can make God do something that he does not want to do? And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Verse 29, Balaam said, Build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. 24 verse 1, Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face toward the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel in camp tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. And then he says, How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows they pierce them, like a lion they crouch and lie down like a lioness who dares to rouse them. May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. Exactly the same words that the Lord said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave, me at, leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell the messenger she sent me, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, 
I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord and, must, and I must say only what the Lord says. Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. And then he uttered his fourth oracle, beginning in verse 15. And he said this, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. And you could see him just looking over there and seeing the people of God gathered tribe by tribe in the plains of Moab, and yet somehow his eyes sees farther into history and sees what God was going to do for them in the millennial kingdom. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And then speaking about the first advent, the first coming of Christ, he says, a star will come out of Jacob. Now he mentions the star. And then he says, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Scepter, of course, refers to kingship, to royalty. But notice, it speaks of a star and it speaks of a scepter, a king. Normally we think of star, and some people today would say that the star that the, the, the kingmakers saw on the east were simply a heavenly body that appeared with bright light that illuminated their way all the way to Bethlehem, all the way to Jerusalem, and then to Bethlehem. But I want you to notice something in verse 17. It says, a star will come out, out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Those are two, the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one, it says, a star will rise out of Jacob. Talking about the birth of Christ. And then the second one, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He is the king of kings who is coming according to Revelation chapter 19. But notice the pronouns that it's used in verse 17. It says, he talking about the star and the scepter, says he will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. And just to, for us to understand what it's going on, that it's more than here a heavenly body, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to Satan after the curse, after the fall of man, and he, and, and he, and he tells him, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he says this, God speaking to Satan, he, talking about the seed of the, oh, talking about Satan, he says, or talking about the seed of the woman, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. To a Jew, to Jewish people who are in the word and they, they understand what God had said in Gen, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, this is a symbol of God's victory over his enemies and his ultimate victory over Satan that that while Satan will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, talking about what happened to Christ when he went to Jesus Christ when he came here as man and, 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 and he was crucified, but says, and he will crush your forehead. Now here it says he will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of Sheth. We don't know what Sheth means and nobody knows what it is and, and I can give you some ideas of it, but basically the, the thing I wanted you to, to see here is what the language that is used is very similar to what God said 
in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it's the same language that we find in, in the book of Judges. In chapter 4, during the period of, of Deborah and, and Barak, when they were, their enemies were against them, and, and Deborah called Barak and says, you, you, can, you can summon our people, and we will fight Sisera and, and, his, and his troops. And he said, only if you come with me. And he said, because of this, a woman then will, will, will be the one remembered for this victory, because God is the one who's going to give us the victory through a woman. And of course, they annihilated the, the enemies of the people of God, and the, the leader of their enemies, named Sisera, fled on foot and went to the, to the tents of, of uh, 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 Jael. Jael is the wife of one of the, the descendants of a relative of the wife of, of Moses. And he went, goes into her tent because the, the, the people that he represented in the Kenites from which he came from, Jael came from, were, were kind of like in good, good terms. And he said, please hide me. And if anybody asks for me, just don't tell them that I'm here. And he was really tired and he wanted some water and he, she gave him some, some milk and he falls asleep. And while he was asleep in, in her tent, what does, he do? what does she do? She takes a peg and puts it on her on his head and crushes his head with it. See, if, if you are a Jewish kid in school and you hear that story of Jael, by the way, the name Jael is the feminine, feminine form, the, the name Joel. Ja or Yah is the first part of the name Yahweh. And El means God and it simply means Yahweh is God. That's her name. Yahweh is God. What does she do? She, like Genesis 3.15 she puts that peg on, 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 on his forehead and he crushes it. And she crushes it, just like it says here. Another story in, in the Old Testament, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Most of us know the story of uh, David and Goliath. Now, let me, let me ask you, think about this. You don't have to answer out loud, but how was Goliath killed by David? With a slingshot? Where did he... Where did David hit him? On his forehead, on his head. He crushed the head of Goliath and then he chopped it off. So what God had said in Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel is something that is repeated. There are foreshadowings of that that's going on. Psalm 68 verse 21, it says, Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies. And so it says here in the fourth oracle that we find here, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So he's saying, I could see him, but not today. I behold him, but not near. He's looking, seeing the coming of the Messiah. I believe from the text, from, and I'll give you some other ones, that the star here is no other than the Shekinah glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the kingmaker saw on that day, on the night that Jesus was born. I'm amazed at this story because, like I said, it is, it is a story that's smack in the middle of, a rebellious, of the rebellion of the people, the people of God. And what I see here is that persistent love that God has for his people. It doesn't quit. 
When I think about the Old Testament and about the people of God, that, I thought I was going to read part of Ezekiel, and it's a little, probably not for company like this, and just what kind of harlotry they had been guilty of. But in the book of Hosea, I mean, this is how God saw his people, and that's how, this is how God sees when we are disobedient to him, when, we, when our hearts are so far away from him. In, in the story of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet who was married. We don't know if he, if he married a, a, uh, a woman of harlotry. We don't know if she was already a harlot when they got married or she became a harlot after that. But all we know is uh, we, s- several things. Number one, is that even their children, the first child that they had was named Jezreel. Uh, and Jezreel, basically because of the, 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 the thing that happened in Jezreel, the, the bloodshed that was shed there. And, and then the second son was called Loruhama, which means not, uh, not pitied or no, no mercy. How, how would you like your kid to be named like the unloved one? And then the third child was named uh, Loami, which means not my people. It's not my child. Hey, not my child, come here. I mean, but that's what the, the kid was named. And why was that? Because she was a woman of harlotry. Now, look at it from the perspective of Hosea, because that's what he was trying to do for the husband who has been wrong. Proverbs talks about that it's adultery causes a man to be so, just go, almost go crazy. And you cannot appease a man who has, who has been wronged by his wife cheating on him. And yet what we see here is the nation of Israel over and over and over again committing adultery against all her lovers. And in fact, she had done so much of this that she has just, he had, Hosea had to buy his own wife for less than the price of what he would have paid for a slave. And he took her home just as God took Israel home just as today. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in your rebellion against God. If you said you have trusted Christ before and yet you have no heart for him, you ignore him, and you'd pursue other things other than him, he's the kind of God, he's the kind of lover who would continue to persist in his love for you. One thing I also want you to see here is God works behind the scene. The Israelites didn't know about Balaam until really Numbers 31, and he tells him, he just tells us that he kills him. What Balaam did was what he could not do by prophecy. He entices Balak and says, if you, if you want to, we find this out in chapter 31, if, if you want to cause them to fall, you entice them with the worship of Baal. The worship of Baal was done through sexual orgy, and you find them doing that in chapter 25. And God sends a plague and kills thousands of them until Phineas avenged the glory of God by taking a spear and spearing this Israelite man who was with a Moabite woman in worship of Baal. When this was pronounced, when these blessings were pronounced on them, they were just down in the, uh, the valley of Moab. They had no clue. This scene was going on up in the mountains. Just as you and I today do not know a lot of what goes on in heaven, I'm convinced that Job never understood what happened to him. Because there's nothing in the text that tells us that God explained to him what happened to him. But you and I know from reading the scriptures 
that up in heaven in chapter 1, there was this conversation between Satan and God. And, and, and Satan accuses Job and accuses God of basically uh, the only way, the only reason he does not curse you is because you protected him. And so all these bad things happened, these bad things happened to Job. The loss of his family, the loss of his wealth, his wife tells him, and, and then he got sick from head to, to, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and his wife just says, curse God and die. I, there's nothing in the text that says he finally understood what happened. By the way, let me ask you this. I know a lot of times when something happens to us, some of the questions we ask is, why God? Why are you doing this? Let me, t let me ask you something. If God explains to you why those things are happening, will that make you feel any better? Probably not. And like I said last week, oftentimes the questions that we ask are, when will this end? Why is, are these things happening? Why, oh God? Instead of asking the question that Job got from God, the answer to which Job got from God, which is the answer is who? The question, I'm sorry, is who? Because when God began to speak to Job, and he says, Job, I want you to brace yourself. I'm about to ask you these questions. And he began to ask him these questions about and it shows how big and magnificent and powerful God was. And so at the end of the book of Job, he says, God, I've heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes, and therefore I repent. Still, there was no question to his answer of why. But he repented because he saw the majesty, the power, the glory, and the care of God in his life. Jim symbolized the pastor at the Brooklyn Tabernacle in, in New York, had a daughter who got into drugs and alcohol and all kinds of crazy things when she was a teenager. And I can't even begin to imagine being the father of a child that has done that, and maybe some of you have been through there. And he and his wife and the church simply prayed. They prayed every Wednesday night during prayer meeting. They prayed on Sunday mornings. He would gather with the elders and with other people, and they would pray for their daughter. And he and his wife would pray, would pray. They didn't know what was happening with God. They didn't know what God was doing. And one day he said, as he was getting ready, they lived in a two-story house, and he was upstairs. As he was walking out of his bedroom to go downstairs, he heard the voice of his daughter and his heart beat fast. And as he looked down from the landing, the top landing, he looks down and sees his daughter on her knees, tears flowing down her face. He said, Daddy, would you forgive me? I've asked for God's forgiveness. Would you and Mom forgive me and take me back? See, when the people of God do not know what's going on, when we don't understand things, some people think that prayer is the, the, the weakest thing we can do when it's actually the most powerful thing we can do. Prayer tells us or tells God that we do not understand everything in life, but we trust Him. We trust you, God, for the things we do not know, for the tomorrows we do not know, and for the questions for which we have no answers. We trust you for everything. And so we're just coming to you in prayer, knowing that what you have said in your word is true, and we're hanging on to those things. When we know we, you love our daughter. We know you love our son. No, Father, that you love my wife or you love my husband. And I'm just coming to you. I do not know what's going to happen, but I know your heart from your word, and I'm trusting you for that. And we pray day in and day out, asking him to move on his behalf so his name is honored.
and God answers, not in our time, but he's working. He's constantly, consistently working. Well, what about the star in the east? And I'll just run through there. And you say, what is the significance of the star in the east? Uh, Ezekiel, just listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 10. The glory, then the glory of the Lord departed over the threshold of the temple. By the way, chapter 10 is after 8 and 9. Of course, it's before, you know, it's after chapters 1 through 9. But 8, nine, eight and 9 talk about their idolatry. I mean, he got... When, when Ezekiel received this, this, this uh, vision, he was in Babylon, and God takes him. I don't know how he did it. I mean, I don't know if it's just in his spirit. He saw it as a vision or took him physically over there. But he says, takes him even to the temple and says, look at what they're doing. They're bowing down. They, the, the elders have their, backs, they have their backs against the altar. The, the, the temple actually faces the east. And so they turn their backs on the altar of God, on the Holy of Holies, and they're facing the east. They're worshiping the sun. And there's a group, there's a room there with women work, uh, weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is the, uh, the, the, the son of, of uh, Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod. And, and Tammuz was the, is what we call Baal. He's, he's got different names. But they were worshiping Tammuz. They were in, in the temple. And so all these detestable things that they were that they were doing in the temple of God. And so in chapter 10, he says this. He says, uh, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above, above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of God left the temple. At the temple at the time, the second temple, they, it, it, it left it all and to go out into the, to the east. Jesus, when he was on earth and lived in Jerusalem in Matthew 20, 21, it talks about that this is the cleansing of the temple. And it says that when he got through cleansing the temple, this is the second time he cleansed the temple. And he says, and he went out to Bethany. Bethany is on the eastern side of, of Jerusalem. And then in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 and 51, this is Jesus' ascension. It says, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. So the area of, of uh, uh, across from there by Bethany, he said that's where he ascended. And then in, in Acts Listen to the promise here. And this is the third thing that I want us to see. Not only is God persistent, has God, there, uh, we, we can trust God's persistent, faithful love. Not only God works behind the scenes, but we also know that Jesus is coming back. Look at Acts chapter, chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who had been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him going to heaven. He's coming back to the same place. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 and 2. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. He's coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. And I've said this before. 
Even, even the Muslims, during the time when they occupied Jerusalem, they knew of the prophecy, and so they tried to break that eastern gate to prevent the second coming, to prevent the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our hope when we look at Christmas, when you see the stars, the, the symbol of the star? What does it tell us? It tells us that there was a Messiah who came. I, I, I don't know about you, but whenever, I think about this a lot because my mind, my human mind and our human minds just cannot comprehend what Jesus did. And I know we say it a lot, you know, Jesus became man and he was born a baby. But have you, have you ever thought about this? The God, the eternal, pre-existent, sovereign, majestic, all-powerful God who is bigger than all of the universes, invaded time and history, enclosed himself in our humanity. And that's why Paul could say in Philippians chapter 2 that he put on that man, that he condescended so that he can, it took on flesh and blood. I don't know what that incarnation means, but I do know the effects of that because the Bible tells us about it. But I, my mind cannot comprehend the bigness of our God in human form, in time and history. Guys, Christmas is more than just a baby and, and all of that. It is, it, is the, it is this incarnation of the living God, the second person of the Trinity. That's what Christmas is. But not only did he come 2,000 years ago, he's coming back. That's our hope. One of the songs that we like to sing in our church, an old familiar hymn, was, uh, is, um, what is the name of that hymn? Uh, it is well with my soul. That last part of that, it talks about uh, that, that when Christ is coming back, and then he says, even so, even so, it is well with my soul. And I thought, what, why does he say even so? But it's a quote from Revelation 22, when Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And John says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come now, Maranatha. Come now, come quickly. I mean, is that, is that the cry of our heart this morning as believers, as we, even as we look back and celebrate his birth? Are we looking forward to his coming again when the king of kings will come back according to Revelation chapter 19? These last two days, last few days really, I've been amazed by the number of news reports about the end of the world coming on December 21st according to the Mayan calendar. The news items yesterday and this morning said this, that people in Russia and China are going out and panic buying candles and essentials for the end of the world. And I was thinking, and, and in the United States, there is panic buying for survival kits. I don't know what survival kits are. It's got to have apple pie in there. And <laughs> but I thought if the... If the world is going to end on December 21st, why would you need anything? That doesn't make any sense to me, but then I think about it, and I thought, well, the world sees the end of the world, the, I said the world, lost people see the end of the world as something to fear. For us, those of us who know Christ, 
The coming of Christ is something to look forward to. My dad worked in Vietnam for many, many years, and there's something, and I know, and we only got to see him two, three weeks out of the year, and I still remember when we would count the days when my dad was about to come home in December for Christmas. And then we would, that day would come, and we would get ready, and my mom would gather us up and get a cab. We didn't have a car, and we'd go to the airport. We loved the airport. Started playing on those escalators when we were kids, my older brother and I, and we, we loved that. And then we would stay out. This is when you, the plane would get there, and they didn't have those ramps that we have now, but they would get down on those stairs, uh, those steps. And we would have this balcony-looking thing at the airport and looking there, and we'd holler. We called him Ama, 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 and we'd wave at him, and he'd wave back. And, and it was a great time. It was a great time. And that's how it's supposed to be, looking forward to the second coming of Christ. During the presidential campaigns in the 1960s, John F. Kennedy often talked about uh, a Colonel Davenport who was a speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. On May 19, 1780, the sky of Hartford, Connecticut darkened ominously and some of the representatives glancing out the windows feared the end was at hand. Quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rose and said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. Question this morning. Are you ready? Not just for Christmas. Are you ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back? The God who came as a baby the God whose light shined that looked like a star 2,000 years ago is coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he will gather his people. Actually, you and I would already be in heaven. But then he will set up his reign and rule here on earth for a 1,000 years. Are you ready? Maybe many of you are, but if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ and there's a sense of dread even and you're thinking, surely the Mayans are wrong. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what if they're right? I'd say, don't pay attention to the Mayan calendar. Pay attention to what the Word of God said. He already told us, God, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man does he, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23, 19. The answer is no. What he has said, he will do. He has done what he said he will do in the future, in his second coming, he will do. And you can count on it. Question is, you believers, are you ready? You look forward to it. And if you are a non-Christian this morning, you can be ready. He is the God of hope. He is the God of mercy. He is the God of love. We should have been judged a long time ago. But he's a long-suffering God, and he gives us a chance to either receive him or reject him. 
but he offers the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know what trips people up about the offer of salvation in Christ? It's the seeming simplicity of it until you look at it from the God side. The God side is so hard. It is so hard. And God paid for all of the hardships with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, him living his life on this earth, being mocked and judged unfairly, being crucified, dying on that cross, a death that you and I deserve, coming back to life on the third day and ascending into heaven. He did that for you so that you will have a way to eternal life, a relationship with the living God. No man can come to the Father except through me, the Lord Jesus Christ said. And if you're there and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to know him, come visit with myself or uh, one of the, uh, our elders, one of the men here in the front uh, later on, and don't, don't leave without knowing whether you really are in Christ or not. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, what an incredible, incredible love and grace and mercy that you show undeserving people like us. At times, Father, when we read the Old Testament, we, we act like uh, we pass, pass judgment on, on the Israelites when, Father, we're guilty of the same thing. And we thank you for that, Lord, that not only do you offer us forgiveness today and life in Christ but father we can look forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will make everything new and we can we look forward to the consummation of the ages when the dwelling of God shall be with man forever and there'll be no more tears there'll be no more sorrow there'll be no more death there'll be no more mourning and everything would be set right but in the meantime father as we go through this life Lord, we can count on you that no matter what we face, the things we don't even see, we know that our God in heaven is at work and you're accomplishing your purpose. And for that, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.